This morning is Sunday morning. It's May 20th. It is 2007. Our title is The Apprentice. Don't forget as we worship in here and we begin to preach in here that we have friends watching us from Baton Rouge. And uh, I encourage you all to be in prayer for the Kenshins and also for the Cooks. It's difficult to have satellite church. They miss the bodies sitting next to them. Some people have related stories before about a little boy who was scared in the dark and his daddy came in and said, What's wrong, son? Don't you know that Jesus is with you? He said, Yeah, daddy, but I just need somebody with a little skin on them. It makes a difference to have people walk up and hug you. It makes a difference to have people put their hands on you and talk with you and share their lives with you. And those guys are doing it in an even smaller group. Our title this morning had to do with this show that Donald Trump is the star of. I'm going to play this video clip and then we'll talk about it. Take the back row. that last guy they put up there? Donald Trump. Wow, he's distinctive, isn't he? He's got his own unique hairstyle, right? Did you hear the words that they uh, mentioned in there? Asked them on the screen. What if you could have it all? Did you see that? Big bold letters. What if you could have it all? Then they flashed up pictures. The candidates. You got them? What are they candidates for? The apprentice. They're candidates for an apprenticeship under Donald Trump, right? How many people applied for those positions? Millions, right? Millions. The ones that were up there, were they uh, good-looking people? Yeah. Yeah, they didn't pick any, uh, any ugly ones, did they? Were they smart people? And most of them pretty well educated. Did you hear the song in the background? Money, money, money. Do things, do things, do bad things with it. Money can drive some people out of their minds. The almighty dollar, mean, mean, green. What are they trying to appeal to? Boy, if you will come and be an apprentice under this great man, what will you have? You can have it all. Man, you can have whatever you want. There was one last little phrase there I thought was really pretty interesting. It said, uh, it's nothing personal. It's just business. What is that an excuse for? An excuse to do whatever you want to do, right? Because we're in pursuit of the almighty dollar. Everybody's in an apprenticeship program of some kind or another. You need to decide what you want to be in. Everybody's being formed and shaped by their cultural influences around us. We are. There's no way to change that, no way to get out of it. But you can make an active effort to be an apprentice of some things rather than others. In the world right now, especially some of you young men, are being pulled in a business sense. People see talents and anointings that are in you 
because God gave them to you. And they want to use them for their own good. They want to appeal to you with that mean, mean green. Don't worry, it's just business. This has been going on for hundreds and hundreds of years. I read Pilgrim's Progress, written in the 15th century. And there's a man called Worldly Wise Man in it. And all of his advice to Pilgrim is why he has to... Don't worry, it's not personal, it's just business. Oh, the kingdom thing's great, but you need to do these things to take care of your family. You need to do these things to succeed in the world. What is Donald Trump best known for? Being rich, right? And on that show, what else does he do? He does this little thing. You're fired, right? People love the way he rejects people. Hmm? The way he's harsh. And what kind of axioms does he live by? Do unto others before they do unto you? Yeah, yeah, he does, doesn't he? He's most famous for bringing people in a boardroom. And what do they say about their sacrifice and the reason that they're there? Those of you that have seen the show. I've given up these 24 weeks to be here with you, Donald, because I just want to be in the boardroom with you. I, you're a great man, and if I can walk in your shadow, then I can learn the great ways of the world and be successful like you. Am I lying here? No, none of you have seen the show because you're all holy and don't watch TV, right? Y'all can talk to me this morning. I, I'm a sensitive soul. I get my feelings hurt. I want to talk to you a little bit about the educational system in first century Israel because it was an apprenticeship program. It was not a corrupted, satanic version like that garbage. It was something that was pure and that was holy. And it still exists today. And then I want you to examine your hearts and think about who you're an apprentice of and whether or not you're living up to that call. See, because we have a goal in life. I want, I want to submit to you a radical idea real quick. It comes from a guy named Rob Bell. Before man ate from this tree in the garden, things were pretty good, right? Ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil and it went downhill pretty quickly. In the 21st chapter of Revelation, we have another picture that's very similar. We have a river, just like in the first or second chapter of the Bible. We have a tree of knowledge of good and evil there, right? We have a tree of life. I'm sorry, that's the tree we had. Tree of life with the leaves for the healing of the nations. Oh, things are pretty good from that point forward, aren't they? Yeah. So really the problem that we have is this temporary time period between the trees. You follow me? Make you wonder what reality is, huh? You ever had somebody look at you and say, you know, you're just not living in reality. Well, is reality the eons before the tree and the eons after the tree in Revelation 21? Or is reality this brief momentary abnormality here now? See, men like Paul had an eternal perspective. They could look at troubles in this life and call them light and momentary troubles. And the reason he could do that, he said, was because it's not worth being compared with the glory that will be revealed. The world wants to take you in a very short time, give you a quick path to success that will not last in this brief time period between the trees, between the fall and restoration. What God wants to do is teach you to be His apprentice and live in a world that will never end. Saints, this morning I'm going to lay out some teaching before you that I promise you haven't heard. Bits and pieces you will have heard. Some of you have heard me teach before. But I want to give you some quotes from some ancient sources of wisdom and see how you feel about them. See what it does to your heart. And see if maybe I can stir you to think a little differently today than you did yesterday. Because that's my goal every day. If you are not changing your mind occasionally, you're not growing. You're dead. This kingdom walk is meant to be dynamic. It's meant to be something that we have to seek God and stay in step with Him. It was never meant to be static. 
It was never meant to be definable in four points in a poem or 14 points of doctrine, and this is all you do ever. It's never been that way, and it never will. Men can play church like little kids play house, but it's not the kingdom. Are you with me this morning? All right. The Jewish educational system. Turn with me to Joshua 1.8. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Now you're in Joshua 1. Eighth verse. Mandy's there. Who else is there? Do not let this book of the law. Y'all there? Joshua 1.8. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night. How often? Day and night. So that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. How often do you meditate on it? Why? So that you'll be prosperous and successful. That's not necessarily prosperous and successful like Donald Trump is. Do you think the man's happy? How many wives does he have? How, how, how many helicopters? How many houses? Fixtures in his bathroom. But do you think the man's really happy? I think there's a giant hole in his heart that he's trying to fill with junk and it doesn't work. I don't see a man smiling and full of life there. In fact, I see a staged example of all the success of the world that still doesn't bring a man happiness. Since we need to decide whose apprentice we want to be. I want to submit to you an idea today. And I want to tell you it's not my own. There's a fellow named Moshe, which means Moses. That's the Hebrew way to say Moses. Except this is not the Moses who led the Exodus. This is a great Hebraic teacher named Maimonides. Moshe Maimonides. If you've ever read commentaries, sometimes he's quoted. Now, Moshe lived between 1135 and 1204 A.D. Is it strange that a Christian pastor is going to quote a Jewish sage who lived after the time of Jesus? I mean, those Jews, what could they know, right? I mean, they rejected Jesus. Have you ever thought that? i thought it. I spend an awful lot of time looking at the Bible through these certain colored glasses that frame Jesus as a Christian and everybody else around him as bad Jewish leaders. This morning I repent of that bias. It's something that God's been working out in me for some time that I didn't even know was there. Listen to the wisdom of this man. We serve a God who claims truth wherever he finds it. If I happen to be an atheist and I say something that is true, is it less true because I'm an atheist? No. Truth? It's truth. Listen to what this man says about Joshua 1.8. Every person in Israel is obligated to be engaged in Torah learning, whether one is poor or wealthy, whether one is whole in body or afflicted with suffering, whether one is young or old, even poor people who are supported by charity and go from door to door seeking benevolence, even the man supporting his wife and children, Everyone is required to, set, to find and set a time during the day and the night to study Torah. As it was said, you shall go over it again and again, day and night. That's recorded in the Mishnah. And it's recorded in the Mishnah as a wise saying of Judaism. Does anybody here find fault with it? No, I don't either. So do you think that you might be able to learn something from this statement? If you had to apply that to the church, would you say that that's the church's highest axiom? to meditate on the Lord day and night, to set aside at least two specific times to read. How many of you did that this week? 
Hmm. Turn with me to Deuteronomy 6. Come on. Some of you are fast. In Deuteronomy 6, starting in the fourth verse, this ought to be familiar. It's a prayer that the Jews prayed every day, twice a day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road. When you lie down and when you get up, tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and your gates. What do you think that the Word is trying to impress upon us? That God has taught us about life. We are in an apprenticeship program with Him. And He wants day and night for us to be thinking about His commands. When we walk along the road and we're talking, Have you ever wondered why two disciples of Jesus were on the road to Emmaus talking about Jesus when He appeared to them? Because it was scriptural. It was something that Jews did. Kind of like when we go and move and we go and do works of service, I'm encouraging us to talk about the Word because I want it to be a daily part of our lives. I want it to get in us, flow through us, and be our source for everything. Everybody knows who Josephus is, right? He's a first century historian. Pastors quote him all of the time. Josephus remarked about the educational system and said that it wasn't seen as a luxury or even an option. Education was the key to survival. The Torah was seen as so central to life that if you lost it, you lost everything. He then added these words, Above all else, we and the we there is Jews, pride ourselves on the education of our children. Did you hear in the last two Scripture passages that it talked about impressing upon your children? Led to a question in first century Israel. At what age do you educate children about the Word? We know we have to talk to them when we walk along the road, when we lay down, when we get up, all of those things, but at what age? Deuteronomy 11 begins to teach us the same things. It restates those same principles. It says, even put them on the door frames of your houses so that you touch them going in and out and on every interior room of your house. So when you move from room to room, you see them. Do you think God was trying to get things through the ear gate, the eye gate? Do you think He was trying to get His Word down in our heart? Now, among the questions that the rabbis and the teachers of Jesus' day asked, they wanted to know, How young do you begin to teach the Bible, which is what the Hebrews called the Torah, to kids? The Bava Batra is a tractate in the Jewish Talmud. The Talmud is like a commentary on the 39 books of the Old Testament. I'm going to read you a statement that comes from Jesus' day about the education of children. It says, Under the age of six, we do not receive a child as a pupil. From six upwards, accept him and stuff him with the Torah like you would stuff an ox with food. Do you think they took it seriously? From the time a child was born, you know what words he would first learn to pray? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. A statement that there is no God in the universe besides the God of Israel, and He is your one God. Raised in a situation where God was the King of the universe, and He was your 
God, the God of your community, the God of your people, and the God of you personally. Turn with me to Psalm 78. Yeah, if you hadn't noticed, you'll get lots of Bible turning in this class. Psalm 78, starting in verse 1. O my people, hear my teaching. Listen to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter hidden things from old. Does anybody recognize that? That's right, it's quoted in the Gospels about Jesus. What we have heard and known, what our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, His power and the wonders He has done. He decreed statutes for Jacob and established the law in Israel, which He commanded our forefathers to teach their children so the next generation would know them, even the children yet to be born. And they in turn would tell their children. Then they would put their trust in God and would not forget His deeds, but would keep His commandments. You hear how this is supposed to work. One generation, Deuteronomy 11 says, experienced the exodus. The next generation did not. So the first generation had to pass these things down to the second and tell of the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord. And that generation would pass them down. And Psalm 78 goes on to say, so that a generation yet to be born would know of the great things that our God has done. Now, this started from the time you could hear and speak. And then from age six, we started in a formal Jewish educational system. Come on, guys, most of us in here, if not all of us, are Gentiles. Do you feel a little behind the curve? Yeah, me too. How hard are you working to catch up? Has this gospel been so full of greasy grace, so much sloppy agape, that we don't take the study of the Word seriously? Can we quote more Donald Trump than we can quote Yeshua the Hamashiach? Boy, that's a thought worth pondering, isn't it? You spend more time watching the television than you do reading a Bible. Well, this week I did well. A lot of weeks I don't. I tend to preach on things that are personal weaknesses of mine. So if you feel good and convicted, that's exactly what I'm hoping for. I feel good and convicted. When I realized that a six-year-old Israeli could quote the first five books of the Bible in some cases, I feel pretty darn convicted because I have a hard time quoting an entire psalm. Now, we have some disadvantages during the worship service. As these things have gone from language to language to language, the content hasn't changed, but the manner, the memory aids that are in it have changed. Do you have a problem remembering songs? Let me ask it this way. Is it easier to remember songs than it is the Declaration of Independence? Yeah. That's because songs are written to a rhyme and meter. They're set to music. These are memory aids. You might be surprised that in the Hebrew Scriptures, not only are there anachronisms within the Word so that one verse might start with the first letter of the alphabet and the second verse start with the second to help people remember it, but also it's written to certain rhyme and meter to communicate mood, and emotion. They use literary devices to help get this into people. Would it surprise you to know that the New Testament's written with those same kind of things? They don't work in Greek, though. They work in Hebrew. Does anybody know why that might be? Well, what we have is in Greek. It's written in Greek. But even if it was written in Greek, it was transmitted orally. Y'all name a book that Jesus wrote. No, none of you can do it, huh? Name any book that Jesus wrote. You can't. 
Because Jesus was a rabbi, and rabbis taught orally. And when you're transmitting things orally, He set them to certain memorized techniques that He had learned from other rabbis. But that's later in the message. We'll get there. I want to tell you about three houses in Israel. Some of you have heard this part before. Write it down this time, because I get this question an awful lot. People say, which, which house and what age? The first house of Jewish education, what age do you think it started at? What did Josephus say? Six. six. What did our friend from the Mishnah say? You stuff children at age six like you would stuff an ox with food? Bet Sefer means the house of the book. This all Jewish children in the first century went to. All. Did I make that clear? All Jewish children? Your parents would not be considered Orthodox Jews if they did not send you to Beth Sefer. You were there from 6 to age 10. During that time period, all children were required to memorize the first five books of the Bible. Do you all think that uh, Judah would pass his driving exam right now? Judah being my son, who is age 10. Do you think he'd pass his driving exam? Probably not. Do you think I've ever given him a book of law about driving? No, I've never done that. Why would he want that? He's 10. But what has Judah done that tells him a little bit about driving? You think he knows what a blinker's for? You think he knows what the brake does, what the gas pedal does? You think he knows what to do with those red octagonal signs? Or when you get a green light? How did he learn those things? Because he's been with his daddy. The Jewish way of learning was an apprenticeship method. One of the problems with the American church is we say, do as we say, do not do as we do. This is unbiblical. We say, God knows what's in my heart despite my actions. This is also unbiblical. God knows what's in your heart by your actions. And you know what else? Your kids do too. Mm. Saints, it might be time to wake up and start to live this thing and quit playing church. Or else we could get a little dollhouse and play in all kind of other fantasy worlds, huh? We just play with little dolls all day long and pretend to play house instead of raising our kids. That's funny, isn't it? Being asleep at the wheel is not funny, and that's where most of the church is. It's where I've been a lot of my life. But praise God for His grace that wakes us up. The second house is Bet Talmud. Not all Jewish children went to this one. You know why? Not all could memorize the first five books to the satisfaction of the rabbis. Bet Talmud. Bet Talmud means house of learning. 90% of children went on to this school. It was from age 10 to 14. But of that 90%, not very many made it out. Because during this time, you needed to be able to memorize all 39 books of the Old Testament. All 39. And not just that. One of the neat things about the Jews is remember they learned orally? They passed down traditions from Moses all the way to Jesus' time that said things like, you shall not work on the Sabbath, right? That's written in the Torah. But then they had oral traditions about what that means. How far did Moses consider walking was work on the Sabbath? Do you understand? They had to have those memorized too. So this was like not only knowing what John 3.16 says, but what the greatest leaders throughout the centuries thought about John 16. Sounds like they invested a lot of time in this, huh? One of the more important things in the Bet Talmud was the art of asking questions. How do you think of being tested? 
If I give you a test, what do you think I want from you? Answers to questions, right? This is rote memorization. You can train a monkey to give the right answers to questions, can't you? Right? You feed the dumb animal a sugar cube. Every time he brings you a banana, what's he do when you hold out a sugar cube? Bring a banana. But it requires intelligence to understand enough to ask a good question, doesn't it? In fact, this is why we don't like written answers. We want multiple choice. We want to be able to just spit back out what we were told and pick it from a list. We don't want to have to demonstrate an understanding by supposing our own theories and by having to put something forward. How many people have hidden behind this thought? Well, that's your interpretation. Friends, you want to be very Jewish? Turn that book around and say, oh yeah, what's yours? Ask them a question. Let's see whether they really understand or this is just a smokescreen for their behavior. See, in Bet Talmud, you learn the art of asking questions. Have you noticed how many times Jesus asked a question that He did not answer directly? He asked them another question. And I say, oh, I'll tell you what. You tell me where John got his shmiha, his authority, and then I'll answer your question. When they couldn't answer it, He didn't answer theirs. This demonstrates a desire when you and I are talking and you are asking me questions. It demonstrates a desire to actually engage in meaningful learning rather than sit and just endure lecture. When we think of school, we think of a college classroom and a Greek-style lecture with a great man standing entertaining the people, right? This is not the Jewish way. Jewish classrooms were in the open air. Have you ever noticed that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, look at the lilies. Do you hear that? Look at the lilies. You know why? There were lilies there. Not lily slaughter, still in Lindy's belly. Lilies. He said, look at the sparrow. I suspect the sparrow flew over. Go back and look at all those parables in Matthew 13. You'll find some interesting things. What shall I compare the kingdom of God to? That sounds like he's thinking, doesn't it? Oh, it's like a net being let down into the ocean. Perhaps there was a net being let down into the ocean. This is for a reason. The Jewish rabbis wanted something. They wanted people to see the glory of God, called Kavad, in everything all around them. They wanted the disciples to understand that God's significance, His weight and His glory was in everything that we said and everything that we did. Isn't that neat? You're getting ripped off being confined in here, huh? That's why I let you in my home and I'm encouraging you to do things with me every time we can. And when you're not with me, I want you to be with each other. And when you're all alone, I want you to examine Jesus' walk and think about what He would be doing. See, this is how we get this stuff in us. It's why we can't forsake the gathering together of believers. You want to know about the third house? Yeah. Cassidy does. All the rest of you want to run out of here and go home, huh? Bet Midrash. Bet Midrash. Midrash means the house of study or understanding. Very, very few people went to this. Kind of like Donald Trump only lets very few people in his boardroom. Very few. You've got to be good looking. You've got to have an Ivy League education. I've never noticed that anybody had a particularly strong Christian ethic that was there. Apparently he has some stringent criteria. Bet Midrash was the same way. To be in Bet Midrash, you had to apply to a rabbi. And what you did is you looked at a rabbi's teaching called his yoke. A yoke is something that goes on an animal that he carries to perform his work. Well, 
rabbi wore a yoke. His yoke was his teaching. In his teaching, he used to perform his task, which was teaching or educating Israel. You looked at their yoke and you decided which rabbi you would like to apply to. But out of the first house, not everybody could memorize the first five books, so some dropped out. Out of the second house, out of the second house, Beth Talmud most dropped out. When they dropped out, they went to go be things like, oh, I don't know, carpenters or farmers. But if you passed the second house and you applied to the third, Bet Midrash, you were the top of the top of the top. Then you would go apply to a rabbi, say, I've examined your yoke, rabbi. By the way, rabbi means master teacher. <laughs> yeah, master teacher. I, we don't want to tell our pastors about that. They'll get bigger heads than they already have. Master teacher. You'd go say, master teacher. Have you all ever heard Jesus called master teacher? What they were really saying was rabbi. We've just made that an English word, right? Because that's what we do with the gospel. We change their names, we change their culture, we do everything to make it fit us. You know, all world religions have been that way. Did you know that Buddha was not Chinese? Buddha was not Vietnamese. Buddha was not Korean. Buddha was not even Asian. Buddha was a man named Siddhartha. So why do we see... He's an Indian. Why do we see him all the time with slanted eyes and big belly? Because as he traveled and his teachings caught on in Asia, they reformed him in their image. Oh, those bad Buddhists, right? Look at your cracker white Jesus in your paintings with blonde hair and blue eyes and tell me we haven't done the same thing. Would you love Jesus any less if he had brown hair, brown skin, brown eyes, and maybe a larger than average nose? Do you need Him to be in your image to love Him? Because the very Gospel declares, it demands of you that you be willing to shed what you thought was right. Shed your image and accept God's. The very Gospel demands it. This is why Christian missions work the way they do. Have you ever noticed how many stories have some cracker white dude going to some people that are as black as charcoal somewhere? Or how many cracker white people got an emissary from some dark-skinned fella? Hmm? Yeah, y'all like those terms? They're descriptive. I'm painting a picture. <laughs> Why would God do that? Because the Gospel requires you to enter it from a position of humility. Some might even call it a, I don't know, narrow way. Requires you to start to shed the things that you have always thought were right. What a rabbi would say when you applied to him if he thought you were capable of being his student. Now, rabbis didn't usually have very many students. One of the greatest rabbis, a man named Hillel, was thought to have 70. His successor was thought to have about five. Rabbi Jesus had, oh, I don't know, 12. What he would say to you is, come, follow me. Now, this phrase, come follow me, was like your acceptance letter from Harvard. You were waiting for it. You were hoping because you had just put yourself out there. Said, hey, dude, I can quote all five books of the, of the of Pentateuch. You know what else? I can quote all 39 of the Old Testament. You know what else? You ask me anything about oral tradition, I can tell you. In fact, I studied your yoke, and I think I can be like you, master teacher. What did I want to be like? The master teacher. 
What do you think that that rabbi did most of the time if all of the elite in Israel are applying and he can only handle five to twelve? He said, hmm, go home, learn to be a carpenter. It's good that you know the Bible, but you need to keep studying. You can't be like me. Why do you love Donald Trump so much? Not you, but people. They love to watch him reject people. You're not good enough. You're not good enough. There's something in man that likes to see that. Notice how Jesus greeted his apostles. Did they apply to be with him? He went and found them. He said, in fact, you didn't choose me. I chose you. And where did he find them working? Because they had failed out of the Jewish schools. He went and found the ones that could not make it, the down and outers, the ones who didn't even bother to apply, and said, you, come follow me. Have you ever wondered why they dropped everything they had and followed him? I mean, come on, let's be honest. You see a guy do something that looks a little bit like a magic trick, and you're blown away. But then he says, come on, Keith, you're going to leave Ashley, you're going to leave Devlin, you're going to follow me around for three years. How excited are you about that? You want to go tell your wife that? Why did they do it? The same reason these people followed Donald Trump in that video. It was the opportunity of a lifetime. How exciting is that? Would you say that the Jewish educational system was intense? In light of this, let's talk about what it costs somebody to be a disciple. First of all, you had to acknowledge somebody was your rabbi, your master teacher. Secondly, a disciple in Hebrew is a Talmud. T-A-L-M-I-D. Talmud. Learner. If you wanted to say that in the plural form, which is how you usually hear it quoted, it's Talmudim. That's plural. How do we get from Talmud all the way to disciple? Oh, you'll love this. Well, if you're going to translate the Hebrew word Talmud into Greek, it's mathetes. Right? Now, my pronunciations are probably horrible, but they're phonetic. So, when we take Hebrew and we translate it into Greek, it's mathetes. It's where you get mathematical. It means the study of. Mathematical is the study of things that have a space and structure. When you translate mathetes into Latin... It's discipulus. Well, how do you get discipulus out of Matthews? Because in Latin, I loved this for some reason, to learn is to disco. <laughs> how about that? And you thought disco was dead. Like the 70s movement? movement? Disco? Disco in Latin means to learn. So we get discipulus. It's where we get the word disciple. I want to give you a working definition. Write this down, please. If you don't write things then at least listen closely enough to be repeated if you were asked. Here is your working definition for a disciple. One who is being instructed for the purpose of imitating and being like the teacher. A disciple in the Hebrew sense of the word was not simply one who learned, not simply one who studied. He was somebody who had applied to a master teacher. The master teacher had expressed trust, some might call faith, in the student that he was capable of being like him. So he taught him for the purpose of him becoming like the teacher. Your working definition is one who is being instructed for the purpose of imitating and being like the teacher. Just a little note for fun. Have you all ever heard a different title used than rabbi? Rabban. You know what a rabban is? 
A rabban is a step up from a rabbi. How do you get any higher? How do you get any higher than a masterful, skillful teacher? Well, the rabban is what the Hebrews called the Nasai. He is the president of all of the rabbis. How about that? The president of all of the rabbis. There's only one guy who has the distinction of being the first rabban in all of history. You want to know who he is? Should I tell you now or should I wait? You want to know now? He was a guy named Gamaliel. Why do you think Paul says, hey, I sat at the feet of Gamaliel. Now, what would that mean about Paul? I want you to think about that for a minute. That meant that Paul went all the way through the first house, all the way through the second house, all the way through the third house, applied to Gamaliel, who is the president of all of the rabbis, and was accepted as a student. Think about his sacrifice to follow Jesus. That's a system of prestige. That would be bigger than getting the season one of The Apprentice looking at Donald and saying, you're right, I can do this. But I'm going to go do something else instead. <laughs> you may be the rabban, but I have found the Hamashiach, the Messiah. How important do you think that would be? Now, we kind of like that, huh? Because that puts a Christian against a Jew. A Christian rejecting a Jew. One of the things you're going to learn today is Paul did not reject the things that Gamaliel taught. In fact, you will find Gamaliel's statements in Paul's letters. Wow, how about that? But I'm getting ahead of myself. We're going to follow our rabbi, right? Turn with me to 1 John 2. Y'all got to turn quickly because I'm going to run out of time and this is just too good not to give you. 1 John 2. Come follow me was the official answer, your acceptance letter. First John 2, verse 5, But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. In other words... He is walking. He told you, come follow me, and you are walking in the same manner that he did. Now, walking in Hebrew is is kind of a euphemism. It means how you're carrying out the law. Adam was said to have what with God in the garden in the cool of the day? Walked. It had to do with your whole relationship. Your relationship with God must be like Jesus' relationship with God because he is your masterful teacher and you are his Talmud. You are learning to be just like Him. And why did He choose you? Because He thought you had the ability to be like Him. Come on, saints, that's worth, that's worth something. That's worth a nod or an acknowledgement of some kind, right? In some churches, they might even say, Amen. Amen. Oh, yeah, Charlotte's been to church. Thank you. Now, would you be surprised then to find out that in the Mishnah, which is kind of a compilation of Jewish writings about the oral law, a rabbi named Yosef ben Yozer. Doesn't that sound funny? Like when I was a kid, we made fun of people who tried to be uh, skateboard people, and we called them posers. Well, this is a Yozer. Jose, son of Yozer, said to his disciples, Cover yourself with the dust of your rabbi's feet. That sounds strange, doesn't it? Those crazy Jews, what are they talking about? Picture something. 
you got Rabbi Yeshua, who some are claiming is the Hamashiach. He's walking down a dirt road, right? From one town to another. Who's following him? His twelve disciples, his Talmudim. They're walking as he walked. In fact, they're staying so close to him as to not miss a word he might say that the dust he kicks up from his feet is landing on them. How about that? Do you think maybe that's why Psalm 119, you write this down since I don't have time to do it, 132 through 136 speaks of walking in the footsteps of God and loving His law? Or maybe also in Romans 4, when Paul said, hey, is God the God of the circumcised only? Is He not also the God of the uncircumcised? But we who are circumcised must walk in His footsteps. Paul is relating to people who know the Jewish customs in the book of Romans because the church is made up of both Jews and Gentiles. He's saying it's not enough for you to know the law. You have to walk it out the way that Jesus did, as if His dust was on you. See, they were all familiar with this. Sometimes when he's writing in the book of Romans, he says, for I'm writing to men who know the law. Well, which law is he talking about? That was Romans 7, the first verse. Go look and see which law he's talking about. I'll tell you later who taught him that. Hmm. Don't look now. How about this statement? You must stay in step with the Spirit. What does that imply? See, this is the Eastern book. Their thought process was that the Holy Spirit in Jesus' absence was just like your own personal master rabbi. How about that? You walk where He walks. When did Israel learn this message? In the desert. When the cloud picked up and moved, they picked up and moved. When it settled, they settled. So in the absence of a prophet, pastor, teacher, apostle, evangelist, you have the Holy Spirit there. So you're never without a masterful teacher. What a high honor is this. God Himself will be your rabbi by way of His Spirit, by way of His Son, and by way of His body on earth. How much time have you spent being uh, discipled though? We're so fiercely independent as Americans. We don't like something, we go from this church to that church. We've got no problem just picking apart a leader's life. Anything to avoid introspection into our own lives, huh? What if the magnifying glass that you use on other people was applied to you? I want to submit to you something. Let's put down the magnifying glass that examines everybody's faults. Let's pick up the mirror that is the Word of God and begin to look at ourselves honestly. Are you playing with Jesus? Or is He your master rabbi and you're doing everything in your power to walk as He walked? And let's put aside this old religious excuse that says, well, none of us are perfect. We have to live in this flesh. Or all of the other ridiculous garbage teachings that have been handed to us by men who compromised a long time before we were born. When will we say, I will give everything to walk after the Master? This is the only way it worked in Jesus' day. The only way that it worked. Baba Metzi 2.11 is a passage from the Mishnah. This is how I paraphrased it. The ties between the teacher and the student take precedence over that of a father and son. Whoa. That's kind of dysfunctional by 21st century standards, isn't it? The ties between the teacher and a rabbi, a rabbi and his student, take precedent over his relationship of father to a son. This was their reasoning. 
Your father brought you into this world and your teacher shows you how to enter into the world that is to come. Now, watch this. Have you ever thought about Jesus as having appeared in a vacuum? (laughs) You know, Jesus shows up, He's born of Mary, and like Matrix, He gets plugged in and downloaded everything that God knows He knows. We treat it like that sometimes, don't we? He walks around in the thing where He knows everything all of the time. Now, y'all all get offended with me, so I won't do it today, but I can show you lists of things that the Scripture says specifically Jesus did not know or that He had to find out or that He learned. But in any case, I am not trying to bring Jesus down here. I'm trying to shape your understanding that Jesus was a rabbi who walked perfectly, but the Scripture says that He learned things. You ever read in Luke that a child grew in wisdom and stature? He evidently didn't get the Godhead download of all knowledge at birth. Maybe he had to learn and acquire things like we did. Why don't we tend to think of him that way, though? We would rather him some class that is totally unobtainable to us. Perfection is totally unobtainable. You already screwed that up, <laughs> right? Sometime today, yesterday, day before, you already messed that one up. So that part is unobtainable. But learning, hearing from God, the kingdom's built on this. Didn't he look at Peter and say, you're a rock? Because he got this revelation, and on this rock I will build my church? Hmm. Your relationship with your rabbi has to outweigh that of your father and mother. Turn with me to Luke. Have you ever thought that Jesus may have had influences in his life? Fourteen. See if I don't tell you the chapter till I get there, and sure as I get there first. We love to be first so much, we're going to call this first life-changing ministries. How ridiculous does that sound? And yet it doesn't sound ridiculous to say first so-and-so denomination, does it? The most ridiculous, ungodly ideas that could ever happen, you give them to somebody and pass it down a few generations, all of a sudden it seems normal. The Scripture makes fun of people who want to be first. Paul even mentions a guy in one of his letters who loves to be first, and it's a derogatory, it's impudence that he's talking about. And we name our churches first this, that, and the other. (laughs) Yeah, that's... (laughs) So long as it's not last day saints, but uh, okay. 14. Luke 14, look at verse 25. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them. And He said, If anyone comes to Me and does not hate his father or mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be My disciple. What's He saying? Where did He get that idea? Well, the Mishnah before Jesus' time records that the relationship between a rabbi and his students had to outweigh that of a natural father and natural son. Why? Because the natural father brought you into this world, but the master rabbi was teaching you how to enter into the world to come. This is the light in which Jesus is saying this. He's saying, guys, my teaching has got to outweigh anything that you've heard anybody else teach. How about that? In fact, the rabbi called, and Jesus even spoke about it, he called their disciples children or sons of. Banim is the word. B-A-N-I-M. And sometimes it's used derogatory. Boy, your disciples are twice the hellions you are. 
right? And sometimes it's used as positive. You ever heard in Paul's letters, he said, I, like a father, have spoken to you, my children. He said, you may have 10,000 guardians in Christ, but you only have one father. He's appealing to a Greek people with a Jewish idea. He said, when I became your teacher, I became like a father to you. Trust me, I'm trying to teach you what is right. This is not an ego trip. This is laying it down. Most of us in the kingdom have come to a place when we've had to choose between what Jesus said and what our family said or thought. Some of you never get there. You acquiesce to every request. You'll never be successful in the kingdom like that. That's pansy Christianity and Jesus won't take it. But when you summon the courage to do what the master rabbi says, though none go with you, you still will follow. Oh, did you think we just sang those songs for fun? You find all the power of the kingdom. Now, the beautiful thing is, people love leadership. I will be wrong at some point in my son's life, but when he takes his stand for God and he does what God says, I will follow that leadership because I'll see the anointing of God on it. How beautiful is that? Mm. I guess I should read some of this. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. What was Jesus' yoke? Well, he says it was easy and it was light, but it also involves a crucifixion. And if you're not willing to do that, you can't be the disciple. Sounds like you have to die to self to be a disciple of Jesus. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, This fellow began to build and was not able to finish it. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Did you ever read those words before? Did they ever impact you, though? You have to be willing to give up everything that you have. A good friend of mine that's Christian for a lot longer than me named Jeffrey Newman said, the problem with us Christians is we enter Christianity, we throw away all... His day was a little different than mine. We throw away all of our Beatles albums. We get rid of everything that reminds us of the world. Then we spend the next 20 years trying to reacquire it all. And it's true. It's true. If you don't have the attitude that says, I will give up everything to follow the master rabbi because he chose me, you're not really a disciple. You are somebody who's watching from a distance. You're kind of a poser. <laughs> Boy, there's a lot of those, huh? How would you say poser if you were Jesus talking in the first century? You're a goat. You look a lot like a sheep, but you're a goat. Next time you read that parable, think of it that way. And how do you tell the difference between the posers and the real thing? By what they do. So how do you tell the difference in your life, whether you're a poser or a goat? By what you do. But that's not what we talk about, is it? We talk about what we believe. Aren't we more comfortable talking about an abstract statement out there that is really subjective and not able to be judged? Wait till you hear some of the things Martin Luther said about the book of James. <laughs> he really was not fond of James because he said, I will show you my faith by what I do. And Luther was adamantly opposed to that. He wanted to throw the book out of the canon. Do you think that's been an influence in Christian theology? No, not Martin Luther. He was never an influence. In... Come on. A lot of things we can be praising him for. There are a lot of things that are so shameful we can't mention. I think it's that we look at the Pharisees, we point to a few hypocrites in the crowd that were in leadership, 
And now the word Pharisee, instead of a respected biblical teacher, means hypocrite. But we don't turn that same magnifying glass on ourselves. If I read you things about Martin Luther and every other religious leader that you ever admired that are shameful, does that mean all of their work is shameful? Or does it just mean they were greatly flawed men? We claim truth where we find it. If Luther said something that was good, we call it truth. If he said something that was total garbage and complete gradu, there's a nice Louisiana word, throw it out. Hmm. By the way, Matthew 10.37 takes the same thought, but because Matthew's just got a different writing style, instead of saying, hate your father and mother, the Jews that he's writing to already understood it. He said, you must love Jesus more. If you don't love me more than your father and mother, you cannot be my disciple. See, the relationship's not really hate. He's saying you have to be willing to do a side with your advice and take up the master rabbis or you can't be a disciple. How about that? Okay, so that's the system. Let's deal with some problems. Matthew 1.1. How does it start? Because I don't have time to read it. It said, these are the generations of Jesus who was from Abraham, who was from David. Or I did that exactly backwards, but you understand it starts with a long genealogy. All of those men were from what country? Israel. They were all Hebrews from the land of Israel. In uh, Luke 1.26, the angel Gabriel shows up in the sixth month to a little town called... No, not Bethlehem. Galilee. Yeah, he's in the Galilee. He's at Nazareth. Where is that? Israel. Oh, that's right. So Jesus was descended from Jews... Born in a Jewish town, right? Here's a not-so-profound statement that struck me very profound. Rob Bell wrote this in Velvet Elvis. Before all of the big language and the grand claims, the story of Jesus was about a Jewish man living in a Jewish region among Jewish people, calling people back to the way of the Jewish God. That ought not surprise any of us. But when I encountered this thought, I thought, no way! He's Christian! Because I had read the gospel with this verse that pitted Christians against Jews. Instead of the proper way to view it, which is all Christians were Jews, and then we got invited in. Hmm. Now this was aided greatly by the fact that I lived in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I knew lots of Catholics. I knew lots of Baptists. I was confirmed in the Lutheran church, so I feel supremely qualified to criticize Luther, which I'll do here in a little bit. I didn't know any Jews. It wasn't until I moved to Texas I worked around, encountered, or ever came into contact with Jews except for my trips to Israel. You know, it's always easiest to have misnomers and misconceptions about people that you don't interact with daily. Those of you that grew up around Jews may not have had some of these. But let me read you something I wrote because I didn't think I could say it as good as I could write it. About Pharisees. I had long held the popular belief that all Pharisees were hypocrites and generally bad people. In fact, that's our definition of it is in Webster Merriam Dictionary. Hypocrite. Pharisee synonymous with hypocrite. This belief was largely due to the way the subject is generally treated from the pulpit. No offense to my previous pastors, but they didn't do a good job with this. And their pastors before them didn't do a good job with it. So we were stuck with error. Although there are some scathing words directed towards the hypocritical practices within Phariseeism, the Scriptures also record many positive attributes that have been largely ignored. Are you surprised to hear that the Pharisees did positive things in Scripture? Well, I was. 
I've been pulling these references out of books for two years. This bias helped to shape a negative rather than positive view of Judaism. Now, because I thought of Jews like Pharisees, and I thought of Pharisees badly, even before I'd ever met Jews here, I saw people who were steeped in the law who couldn't have a relationship with God. Now, is your silence because I'm hitting the mark and maybe there are some elements of that in your thought process? Hmm. One of the things that the Hebraic roots of the gospel are imparting to me is a new appreciation for the faith and religious movement that produced the Bible. Here are some thoughts to consider. I want to submit to you that Jesus was not born into a Christian denomination. He was not born in a vacuum either, devoid of all influences. He was born into a rich milieu of Jewish thought and tradition all around him. He couldn't escape its influence even if he had wanted to. But he didn't want to. He embraced it. He went to those Jewish schools. He listened to Jewish rabbis and he quotes them. Boy, that's a strange thought. Would you be surprised if I showed you a quote that Jesus did of a famous rabbi in his day? Before I do that, let me tell you where some references to positive things Pharisees did. Acts 23, 6-7. Don't turn there. I will not lie to you during this portion of the message. Other portions? Hmm. You better check me. Here, not going to lie. Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and others Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, My brothers, I am, not was, not used to be, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. I stand on trial because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead. Paul was a Pharisee in the present tense 30 years after the crucifixion. How could that be? I thought he was a Christian. Well, you're going to find out that Jews who had accepted Messiah that we now would call Christian also belonged to the party of the Pharisees. Why? Because the Pharisees taught good things too. Lots of good things. Among them, the strongest teaching that they had, the resurrection of the dead. Why was Paul on trial? Oh, that's right. He was teaching something that Pharisees had been teaching for centuries that Jesus affirmed and Paul championed. Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea were both Pharisees. Did you know that? Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier, this is John 7, 50 and 51, earlier, who was uh, one of their own number, asked, does not our law require us to hear a man before condemning him? He was sticking up for Jesus. Now, how have you heard Nicodemus applied before? Poor timid Nicodemus who went to Jesus at night. Well, he also stood up publicly and said, are you going to condemn him without first finding out what he's doing? Hmm. In John 19, later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a Talmudim of Jesus. What does that mean? He walked so closely that Jesus' dust got on him. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jews. I hadn't figured out how that worked yet, but he's called the disciple. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus. Now, I got several other references, but Joseph of Arimathea is called a prominent member of the Jewish council in Mark 15, 43. He had to be a Pharisee. Had to be. Or a Sadducee. The problem with the Sadducee is why would he be going to bury Jesus and anoint his body for the resurrection? And why would he be hanging out with Nicodemus? The Sadducees and the Pharisees hated each other. Uh-oh. Y'all going to hang in there with me for just a minute? The book of Acts identifies believers 
as being a member of the party of the Pharisees in the present tense. In Acts 15.5, then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, blah, 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 blah. They were actually on the wrong side of this argument. <laughs> but they were believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees. In Luke, the Pharisees actually tried to save Jesus' life. Did you know that? Have you always thought of the Pharisees as only trying to kill Jesus? You go look closely. We've always put Pharisees and Sadducees together. That is worse, worse, worse than putting Hillary Clinton and Ronald Reagan in the same sentence. I mean, these people were so diametrically opposed that I had a hard time sitting in the same room. In fact, after between them, they called each other sons of hell. How about that? wonder where Jesus got that term. If they thought one's teaching went way too far, they even flogged them in the synagogue. But because they were Jews, they would also fight to save each other's lives. I knew brothers like that. And I fight with four of them one time on a road called Bingo Cord in Baton Rouge. That was a bad day. Luke 13:31 says, "At that time, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, "Leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you." They were trying to save his life. Do you remember how Jesus responds? You go tell that fox I'll press on today and tomorrow and on the third day I'll reach my goal. He appreciated that they were trying to help him, but he wouldn't yield. Not all Pharisees were off. Look how Mark records this account. I'm going to read this to you. This is Mark 12:28. One of the teachers of the law, by the way, the teachers of the law in Jesus' day, Pharisees. Sadducees tended to be from the priestly order of Zadok. They were people who worked in the temple. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked them, of all of the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, Jesus answered, is hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's the Hebrew prayer they prayed every day. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but Him. Sounds like they're in agreement, doesn't it? God's Lord. To love Him with all your heart and with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. Who said that? A teacher of the law, a Pharisee. But we've thought all Pharisees were so steeped in the law that they couldn't find God. Boy, you're going to really find this perplexing. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. How about that? You are not far from the kingdom of God. He said, But wait a minute, he wasn't in it. He's just not far from it. Friends, you're going to find out the kingdom of God is kind of an elusive thing. It requires movement every day for you to change your mind about what you thought, for you to grow and be in dynamic motion every day to remain in the kingdom of God in the dominion of God's rule. In fact, you might even have to stay in step with the Spirit or walk as your rabbi walked, who is teaching you the way to enter into the world that is to come. But what do we do in Christianity? We draw our little boxes, our 14 points, and say, this is what we believe. They may be further from the kingdom of God than they think. Because the kingdom of God requires a dynamic, living, active relationship that says, what do you want from me today? Oh, I know. You got wet when you were a child. You walked in an altar. Somebody gave you a gift certificate. So you're good to go, right? You may have been good to go in that moment. Were you teaching I can lose my salvation? Well, read and see what the Word says. 
Salvation's credited to you. None of you have obtained it. And it's credited to you on the basis of your continued trust in Him. I'll teach on that another day. In Matthew 23, verses 1. Let's read that. I cannot believe I'm out of time. I hadn't even got to the great stuff. Matthew 23. The seven woes of the Pharisees. Would you be surprised that in the Jewish literature, the Pharisees themselves had seven woes for themselves? How about that? Well, what do you mean? The Pharisees were very critical within themselves. They would look at a doctrine that they didn't like that another rabbi who belonged to the Pharisees was espousing. They'd say, you're destroying the law with that. You're abolishing it. Say, no, 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 I'm upholding it. I'm fulfilling it. I'm putting it on firmer footing. Jesus also used that terminology. Sometimes if something was so egregious, a couple of rabbis would get together and say, we bind that teaching, which meant we don't permit it. Other times they'd say, no, no, Chandler's teaching's good. We loose it. What do you think Jesus was trying to tell Peter when he said, you have the authority to bind and loose? Saying, guys, I'm going to give you the ability to make this decision as if you were the Sanhedrin. Hmm. Matthew 23, 1. Seven woes to the Pharisees, right? All you've ever seen here is something, woe to the Pharisee, right? How bad are the Pharisees? You see the great Christian Jesus condemning those bad legalistic Jews. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to His Talmudim, who's He speaking to? The crowds and His disciples, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must, what's that? Obey. Obey them and do everything they tell you. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. Think about this for a second. He is affirming their teaching. He just doesn't think they're carrying out their teaching in their life. Oh, those bad guys. How many televangelists could we put in that category? How many pastors of huge churches could we put in that category? How many of you could we put in that category? Oh, say all the right things, but do them. That's another question. He goes and gives them woes. Those same woes are found in Jewish literature. They said the same things about themselves. You need to read these arguments. Jesus is an insider, a Jew, who agreed and seems to align mostly with the Pharisees, criticizing the leadership. This is like if you're Catholic. Can you criticize other Catholics? Sure. But if you're a Protestant, it suddenly becomes bigotry. You can be critical of a movement that you're a part of. This is the same spirit in which Paul writes in his epistles, too, about the law. He's writing as one who affirms and loves the law. That's why he can be critical about its legalistic misuse. Like Oliver North commenting on our war in Iraq. Is anybody going to say he's not patriotic? No, after you win all those medals, you pretty well earn the right to say what you want to say, huh? Huh. Dr. Brad Young, the professor of biblical studies in the Graduate School of Theology at ORU, says Moses' seat actually existed in Jesus' day. They could be found in synagogues and apparently were reserved for a distinguished scholar who read and expounded Scripture before a congregation. From the ruins of the late 3rd century synagogue at Chorazin, archaeologists recovered a Cathedra de Moshi, as the name appears in rabbinic literature. It is quite significant that Jesus recognizes the authority of the Pharisees to teach Torah 
and teaches his own disciples to do and obey all that the Pharisees teach. There was a literal seat in the synagogues for visiting Pharisees to sit in and teach who were rabbis. Have you ever wondered how Paul got into all of those synagogues throughout the diaspora and was invited to speak? Well, that's an interesting thought, isn't it? Huh. Maybe this thing's not like we had all thought. On a last note regarding this subject, if Jesus were addressing any of our denominations today, would not most of the language be harsh in regard to hypocrisy? I'm sure He would love to name it and claim it and uh, God wants you rich gospel. The guy with the last name... Yeah, I'm sure He'd love a lot of it. If the answer is yes, does this mean that there is no worth in anything they've done? Are we saying that you should throw away all the denominations? No, I've taught many, many times. You cling to what is good. Look at some of the people that we've been taught to look up to. Anybody ever heard of a theologian named Lightfoot? Anytime you read a commentary, our present-day commentaries quote Lightfoot because he taught from 1602 to 1675, or rather that was his lifespan at Cambridge, and he wrote a classic commentary. In his commentary, I want you to hear what he wrote, and I want you to know on my PC study Bible right now, he's quoted in every commentary. Jameson Fawcett Brown, Matthew Henry, you name it, he's quoted in it. Jews themselves stink. Their writings stink as much as among all of them. They are all impious men with the most impious of all cursed wretches, the most cursed. How would you feel if you were a Jew and uh, Brother Nicholas was reading to you and he goes, hey, wait, wait, look, i got a commentary and it explains what you Jews need to know about Jesus. Hold on. Ooh, didn't know that was in it. What shaped our thoughts? Every commentary I have quotes this guy. Here's another one. This was one of my personal favorites. Gerhard Kittel. Anybody ever heard of the big Kittel? This is a ten-volume lexicon. Uh, by the way, let me tell you what, what one of our most popular bookstores says about this. All right? That way you get an idea for how popular this is for those people looking for commentaries like me. One of the most widely used and well-respected theological dictionaries ever created. It is indispensable for studies of the Greek New Testament. Uh, later on they say, uh, this theological dictionary is one of the few agreed-upon standard reference works in the area of New Testament studies. Sounds like it's pretty highly respected. You know how much it costs? About $700. Right? So, Gerhard Kittel must have been a real godly man then, huh? Somebody we can look up to? Gerhard Kittel, the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, was first published in 1932 at the request of the Nazi party in Germany. Kittel himself was a Nazi, and anti-Semitism is a matter of record concerning his life. How about that? So am I saying throw away Kittel's work? Not at all. I'm not saying throw away Lightfoot's work. Not at all. I'm saying... With the same leniency, we look at Protestant reformers and men who have shaped our theology. Let's apply that to the Jewish faith. Do we throw away everything because we find out something bad? And I want you to think about something else. Acknowledge that perhaps somewhere in your thoughts, you may have been unduly biased by men who taught you theology, who learned it from men like these. Is it possible? Is it possible that Paul might puke? if he heard the way that he was quoted? Have any of you ever envisioned Paul or Jesus with ringlets, with a beard, 
dressed as a Pharisee? Hmm, probably not, huh? In fact, it gets so absurd if you're an African-American, you envision him African-American. If you're white, you envision him white. If you're an American, you envision him in a three-piece suit. This is not right, saints. My favorite question I get is, are you Jewish? No. I, I eat crawfish and love it. But I recognize that the gospel we have is Jewish. Here's one. You remember I told you about Luther? Uh, Martin Luther described the letter of James as a right strawy epistle and called for its removal from the canon because of the words, so faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. He demanded that it be taken out of the canon of Scripture because of that sentence. Faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. But I'm sure that didn't end the way any of us thought we were saved, did it? Just sit on your salvation and wait for heaven. No, none of us ever were influenced by that. Huh. Who do you think said this? Okay. I'm going to try to quit beating you to death with coats here for a minute. But who do you think said this? Which one of Hitler's regime do you think said this? These Jews should be treated with sharp mercy. Their synagogue set on fire with sulfur and pitch thrown in. Their houses destroyed. They are to be herded together in stables. Their prayer books, their Talmud, their Bibles are to be taken from them. Their rabbis are to be forbidden on pain of death to give instructions to praise the public or to pray to Him. Their money and jewelry, gold and silver, are to be taken from them since everything they possess has been stolen through usury. Anybody want to venture a guess? That must have been Hitler, right? Must have been the architect of uh, the final solution. Huh? No, go back about 400 years before that. That was written in 1534 by Martin Luther. Am I saying that Martin Luther didn't give us anything good? Not at all. What a war horse. One of my heroes of the faith. How good was that, though? Oh, I would say at the least that should be discarded. That could have come out of Hitler's mouth, huh? But hey, praise God for our modern denominations. They stood up and fought these errors of the past, right? I mean, they wouldn't sweep that under the rug and never share it, would they? Well, you're right. In 1995, they did renounce that statement. What year? 1995, written in 1534. Do you think we've inherited some error? Maybe if we've inherited error and yet God still works with us, we could look at the Pharisaical order and the system of the rabbis and see some truth and good in it. Do you think that would be fair? Okay, well, good. As maturing Christians, we need to lay aside the cultural bias that has gone unnoticed in our hearts because of the theological conditioning we have received from the scholars that have gone before us. As we do this, an entirely new, vivid, exciting picture emerges from Scriptures. We, the Gentile branches, share the nourishing sap from the Hebraic roots. Let's go back to Jesus, the Jew. Can you all bear with me a few more minutes? Do you want to know what comes next, or should we just quit? Should we quit? Lisa, should we quit? Who do you think said the following? What is hateful to you, do not do to your neighbor. This is the whole Torah. The rest is commentary. Go and study. A guy named Hillel. You know what? He lived just before and during the time of Jesus. That sounds an awful lot like the golden rule, doesn't it? Well, how's the golden rule go? Somebody? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Hear this statement. What is hateful to you, do not do to your neighbor. This is the whole Torah. The rest is commentary. Now go and study. Do you think Jesus might have been quoting the greatest rabbi of his day? When Jesus was 12, 
12, you got me? The last part of the second school where you learned to ask questions. When Jesus was 12, where did his parents find him? In the temple, asking questions. And they were amazed with his answers. How about that? Wonder who he was asking. Could it have been one of the greatest rabbis of his day? Do you think maybe Jesus had discussions with a Jewish rabbi about something he would teach later? Huh. Well, there's a new thought, huh? It was a man named Hulel who was one of Israel's greatest teachers just before the time of Jesus. Now, I've been reading a book by a guy named Rabbi Joseph Telshkin, and in his book he relates this story in this way, and I want you to hear this because I just think it's beautiful. Imagine that you're this Gentile. 2,000 years ago, by the way, Rabbi Joseph Telkin, not a Christian. Okay? That's right. Your pastor occasionally reads books from people who aren't Christians because I think you can learn things from people who don't have everything right. I'm hopeful of that or else you don't have any hope to learn from me. <laughs> 2,000 years ago, when a non-Jew asked Hillel, the leading rabbi of his age, to define Judaism's essence, the sage could have responded with a long oration on Jewish thought and law. And in an instant, it would be blasphemous to reduce so profound a system to a brief essence. He could have said anything he wanted to about the law. He could have said anything he wanted about the system. He could have been disgusted that this Gentile asked him to reduce this beautiful religion to a brief statement. Indeed, his contemporary, Shama, furiously drove away the questioner with a builder's rod. The Gentile came to ask Shama first. Shama tried to beat him and ran him off. You know what's interesting about that? Shama was once Hillel's teacher. Oh, apparently every once in a while students learn something their masters didn't know. Hmm. Hillel, however, responded to the man's challenge. What is hateful to you, do not do to your neighbor. This is the whole of the Torah. The rest is commentary. Now go and study. A model statement that has defined Judaism's essence every since. This is a present-day rabbi saying this is still, in his opinion, the essence of Judaism. Do you think Jesus might say that's not far from the kingdom of God? That's what he told somebody in Mark 12. But is that how you viewed it? Or have we been tempted to be lumped in with people throughout medieval history that call them Christ killers and treat them like they're bad people? Of course not. You never met any Jews. But in your thoughts, when you read about the Jews in the Scripture, how have you thought about it? Hmm. Hillel was quoting from Leviticus 19.18. But it all sounds strangely familiar because Matthew 7.12, this is how Rabbi Yeshua said it. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. I already told you that Jesus Christ's wisdom and stature. I'm suggesting that perhaps he gleaned things from these other rabbis. Here's another little tidbit. Hillel was the grandfather of a guy named Gamaliel who taught Paul. How interesting is that? In fact, Hillel formed a house of Pharisaical thought called the House of Hillel as juxtaposed to the House of Shema, also a Pharisee. And you know what? They called each other sons of Satan. They bound each other's teachings and they got mad at each other. Unless there was a third party who opposed them, then they stood close together like any two good brothers. Let me tell you about Gamaliel and then we close. I can't believe that. Gamaliel held a reputation of the greatest teachers in the annals of Judaism. Somebody once said about him, since Rabban Gamaliel the elder died, there is no more reverence for the law. No more purity and abstinence died out at the same time. 
This is Paul's teacher. Your NIV says that he studied under Gamaliel. It's not what the Greek says. The Greek says he studied at the feet of Gamaliel, implying that the dust of his feet got on Paul. Among the things Gamaliel is famous for, he taught that a woman is free to remarry even if only one witness gives testimony that her husband is dead. In fact, he taught extensively on what happens if a spouse dies. He wanted to ease the law that required multiple witnesses for the benefit of the woman. So when Paul writes in Romans 7, I'm writing to men who know the law. You know what the law says about a spouse who dies. Where do you think he learned it? Could it have been from his rabbi that he studied under for 15 years? Hmm. Imagine that. It was taught in Gamaliel's day, the Shema, the prayer, could not be recited on your wedding night. Right? You had to affirm God's lordship every night but your wedding night. And the thought behind this was, nobody can possibly be expected to pray with what the Jews called kavana, a true hard intention on their wedding night. But Gamaliel prayed on his wedding night. And when his disciples asked why, he said, I won't throw off the yoke of the kingdom even for a brief moment. In fact, he set it up so that they would ask him a question and he could give them that answer. And he turned it around on them. Will you throw off the yoke of the kingdom? <laughs> wonder where they learned those things. Among other things, Gamaliel taught furiously about the resurrection. I have a two-page quote that we won't read here. He called the Sadducees heretics for not believing in the resurrection. He maintained that the resurrection could be found in the law, the prophets, and the writings. And he quotes scriptures from each in an open debate without a lexicon, a computer, off the top of his head because he had it memorized. From that debate, you can find scriptures that Paul wrote in defense of the resurrection. Where do you think he learned it? Christianity did not birth out of a vacuum. In Acts 5, the Sanhedrin wants to hurt Peter and John. They want to kill him. Gamaliel stands up and says, wait, if this is of God, you'll find yourself fighting against Him. If not, it'll just fade on out. Do you think maybe from Philippians that's why Paul has the attitude about those that preach Christ out of false motives? He said, well, they're out of false motives or pure. At least he's preached. Do you think maybe he learned during those 14, 15 years from his master teacher that God's big enough to work that out? So whether from Paul or Gamaliel, is it a lesson worth learning? Hmm. Jesus had these six things in common with rabbis in his day. And we close with them, and I won't read the Scriptures for you. But I'll give you my notes if you want them. All rabbis in Jesus' day expected a radical call to apprenticeship with the words, come follow me. If you accepted that call, which you had to initiate, you had to go ask, it meant that you had an obligation to walk like they walked. Did you answer that call? And are you living up to that end of your bargain? The second thing, they had to conduct themselves like a disciple. Jesus used the word, he who hears these words of mine and does them will be blessed. No rabbi would tolerate a student who did not put his teaching into practice. How are you doing with that one, saints? Disciples learned by observation the examples of Jesus and then learning to imitate him. In other words, they saw what he did and tried to do it, not just be entertained by it. Four, they learned by working alongside Jesus in the ministry. 
They didn't just try to imitate him when they saw him doing something. They did it right alongside him. Five, they were sent on assignments and then reported back to their master teacher. One of the things that we're trying to do is raise up people who don't have to be told what to do. They've seen our lives. They've seen what the Word teaches. And they go out and try to do it. And then they come back and report to us how it went. And then we'll give you instructive criticism. Just like Jesus did his disciples. I'll try never to look at you and say, are you still so dull? (laughs) Six, they were accountable to their teacher's supervision, correction, encouragement to achieve a more meaningful life by seeking the kingdom. All six of those things can be found in all of the teachers of Jesus' day relationship with their students. And there are scriptural references for each one between the disciples of Jesus and Jesus. But we call ourselves disciples of Jesus too. So they all apply to us. Next time you're outside and you see the trees swaying in the wind, remember Jesus could have been there teaching you. In fact, He is there by His Spirit. Look how the creation worships God. Next time you see a lily or you see a sparrow or any of those things, this is the setting Jesus chose to teach people in. He's teaching us still today. Jesus also had a chief student. Anybody want to take a guess as to who it was? He was the older of the students, Peter. All all Pharisaical rabbis had one student who was kind of like the older student in charge, right? That's why Peter's stepping out and doing so many things. He also received the strictest criticism. Who do you think that corresponds to in the modern-day church? Those are your pastors. We're all learning from Rabbi Jesus. Somebody has to step out and be a little stronger example but they also received the strictest judgment. Isn't that what Paul said? Or I'm rather James said? That's what's going on. So I hope you learned something today. I'm sorry the message was so long, but you're blessed if you do these things. Stand up and let's pray.